0: In the book of Acts, we're going to see miracles and angelic visions and the activity of the Spirit. This is Timberline Church, and in Timberline Church, we believe in the power of the Holy Spirit available to us today. We believe in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. If our commitment to Jesus has led to no ethical changes, no difference in the way we spend our money, no shift in the way that we have attitudes in our family or workplace, if nothing's changed, something's wrong. The kingdom of God has come to us, is coming to us, as we submit to the king. And ultimately, one day, the kingdom will be fully established. In other words, the kingdom is here, but the kingdom is not yet. That's what Jesus is focusing on. Catching the Wind series. This weekend we are thinking about the Spirit comes, not just informationally, but we want to open ourselves to whatever the Holy Spirit has for us. So let's dive in, Acts chapter 2 and verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. Aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed. They asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they've had too much wine. <laughs> in America, it's called waiting in line. In the UK, it's called queuing. Whatever you call it, it's boring, isn't it? It's, it can be frustrating. You are down at the DMV where those wonderful folks work very hard to process the renewal of your Driver's license and they hand you a number. You get a number from the machine. Your number is 438. You look at the thing on the wall. It says they are now processing number 8. You feel despair. You call someone on the phone. Press 1 for this. Press 2 for that. Press 4 for this. Hold please while we play you music composed by a deranged person. And then they ask you those security questions, don't they? What's your mother's maiden name? What's your pet's favorite hobby? And then the bit that always gets Kay and me really messed up, they say, what's your password? I never remember my password. How many of you also experience password tension in your household? Come forward right now for prayer. (laughs) Waiting can be boring. Imagine 10 days of waiting. Ten days waiting in line. That's exactly what happens in this story. Jesus has died. He is raised from the dead. He has spent 40 days, six weeks teaching his disciples and friends about principles of the kingdom. He has promised them that the Holy Spirit is going to empower them. He says, wait, wait in Jerusalem. And it lasts for 10 days. Why the waiting? Why the waiting? Well, for one thing, God doesn't always work on our schedule. I wish he would. But God doesn't always work according to our timing. Not only that, but as we're going to see in the next few minutes, there was particular significance about the day that the Holy Spirit came. Perhaps also the waiting created a greater hunger in their hearts. They'd already heard Jesus say to them, John 15 verse 5, without me you can do nothing. But even knowing that, they tended to do their own thing at times. Now in the ten days, a leanness of heart, a desperation, if you will, develops. They are waiting and they are ready. Let me ask this question just before I move on. Have you come to a place of leanness in your own life yet? Where well, you finally figured out that you were made to walk with God and that you need him. Sometimes we block that question out in the busyness of life. Have you come to that place where you are ready to say, "I, I, I need Jesus, the living Jesus in my life? what happens here on this strange, wonderful, confusing day of Pentecost? First of all, (coughs) let's see that the story of God continues. If you're following in the bulletin, follow with me. The story of God continues. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. The story of God is continuing. You see, the day of Pentecost was the second of three major Jewish national festivals. End of May, beginning of June, weather was good, very popular time. It was 50 days after Passover. Now, Passover was the festival where they celebrated the deliverance of Israel from Egypt. Now, Pentecost is an agricultural feast. It's a harvest Thanksgiving feast. They'd take some of the first cuttings of the harvest, make it into bread, and use it in worship. But it was also a historical festival festival. Because just as Passover celebrated Israel being liberated from the Egyptians, so Pentecost celebrated the giving of the law to Moses at Mount Sinai. You see, Pentecost was about fulfillment and completion and finality. So Dr. Luke, in writing this, he even uses that language in the original Greek. It says, when the day of Pentecost was fulfilled. This is special. Luke wants us to know that what is happening is God's unfolding story and it's not just random, this has all been promised. John the Baptist promised, one is coming, he'll baptise you with the Holy Spirit. The prophet Jeremiah, chapter 31, spoke of this day. Ezekiel, chapter 36, spoke of this day. Peter, when he stands up, refers back to Joel, chapter 2. In other words, this is God's story unfolding, not just fireworks and vague supernatural stuff. We're part of God's story. I, I think that's really exciting because we're currently living in a culture that is storyless. It's called, the sociologists call it a postmodern culture. There is no meta narrative, there is no overarching story which informs us concerning the way that we should live. We're a pluralist, relativist culture where just do it is the way it goes. But no, we and they are part of God's unfolding story. I learned that in a very powerful way. Um, a few years ago, I was preaching in Eureka, California. And, uh, I was, I decided to preach on God's favor. And specifically on the right hand of God's favour. I haven't got time to unpack this. But in the Bible, Old Testament and New, the right hand of God is a metaphor for his favour and approval. So, for example, we read that Jesus is seated at the, the right hand of the Father. That metaphor is picked up. No one in the church knows that I'm preaching on the right hand of God's favour. It's a minute before I get up to speak. Linda, one of the leaders of the church, suddenly wanders over to me. I'm just about to go onto the platform. And she just smiled and she just said, Jeff, would you please hold out your right hand? Freak me out. She took anointing oil, a symbol of the Holy Spirit, and without any words, poured the oil on my right hand. I got up 30 seconds later to preach this with my own right hand dripping with oil. It was as if God was shouting at me, you are part of the big story. This is all that great unfolding story and we are part of it. Secondly, power from heaven descends. Power from heaven descends. Look at this. Suddenly... There's a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. I think it's a man thing, but I'm one of those guys, I don't know what, I can't explain it. I like to win a competition with the fuel gauge in my car. I sense immediate recognition and for some ladies here, deep and profound pain. You know what I'm talking about? The needle on the gas gauge, the fuel gauge, is going down to E. There's something in the male psyche that says, I can beat that. (laughs) I'm in the middle of the Sahara Desert, but I can beat that. And we somehow think that we are accomplishing great things if we manage to get home without AAA assistance. They are on empty, for real. Ten days. But suddenly, get this, suddenly there's a wind blowing in the house where they are. Wind, they knew it was God, because wind in the Old Testament symbolizes the presence of God. Elijah in the cave, the wind blows. In Ezekiel, it's the wind, it's the breath of God that breathes life into the dry bones that is Israel. And they speak in tongues. They speak in languages they've never Learn. They speak in tongues. I can. I can hear someone right now sitting here going, speaking in tongues. Are they going to get the rattlesnakes out yet in in a minute so we can dance around with them? Is this kind of weird and crazy? No, no. Speaking in tongues is a biblical gift, which is still for today. And you say, isn't that weird? I tell you what. If we believe in a God who can speak a word and bring the universe into being. If we believe in a God who can incarnate himself in the speck of a young virgin's womb. If we believe in a God who can take Lazarus, who is stinky, the Bible says, and raise him from the dead. If we believe in a God who can make blind eyes open. I'm getting kind of excited, so I calm myself down just a little bit. If we believe in that God... It's speaking in tongues thing. There's nothing extraordinary about that because Christianity is supernatural. And they speak in other tongues. What's the purpose of speaking in tongues? Three purposes in the New Testament. To glorify God in worship. For self-edification. To strengthen ourselves as we pray. And then there's a speaking in tongues with an interpretation which is a declaration of truth. What happens here? What happens here is that they're worshipping and speaking in languages they've never learned and people from 15 different people groups from around the ancient world heard the good news in their own language. And they say, aren't these boys Galileans? What's that about? The Galileans couldn't even pronounce Hebrew correctly. Just like I could not pronounce the word (laughs) correctly. Hope you appreciate that spontaneous illustration. (laughs) The Galileans. How did they learn this? It's the work of the Holy Spirit. Kay and I have a friend. Her name is Pat Cook. Pat, a single lady, has served as a missionary in Afghanistan for decades. As a single woman, she has suffered the ultimate indignity and abuse that a woman could face. On one occasion, they tried to stone her. She has paid a heavy price for the gospel. One day, she was sitting on a small airplane flying across Afghanistan, sitting next to this Muslim gentleman, and they hit a patch of turbulence. Big turbulence. And she cried out. And as she cried out, she cried out using the prayer language that she'd been given. She cried out. And the Muslim gentleman nudged her. He said, excuse me, ma'am, where are you from? She said, England. He said, where did you learn my language? He said, you just spoke to me, not only in my language, but in the dialect of my village. He said, where would you learn that? She said, well, I, I didn't. I was just praying. He said, you just told me something. She said, what I tell you? <laughs> He said, said, you just told me that Jesus Christ is the real king in my dialect. I mean, there is a God. We're not making this stuff up. This is not a story to make us feel a little better on Sunday mornings. And this is what happened there and is happening still. There's 120 of them filled. It's not just the... It's not just the apostles. One writer has said this is a democratization of the spirit. It's it's not just the few. It's for everybody, the ordinary. Just as Jesus did everything that he did. Please see this. Jesus did everything that he did on this planet through the Holy Spirit. When he stood up and gave his first sermon in Capernaum, in the synagogue there, Luke chapter 4. He said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Just as he did that, just as he taught the apostles, Acts 1, through the Holy Spirit. So Peter stands up through the Holy Spirit and gives his first address. Can I, let's, let's see this too. This is not just some random supernatural kick. Yeah, let's, let's have a bit of fun with some power. This is power. To fulfill the purposes of God. Ongoing strength and power. The Bible teaches us, Ephesians 5, to be being filled with the Holy Spirit. The power of God descends. And then what happens? Well, thirdly, amazement and conflict is ignited. Amazement and conflict is ignited. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said they have had Too much wine. There's a pattern here. Jesus stood up in the synagogue, under the power of the Spirit, gave his first sermon. Some people accepted, some people hated him. Peter stands up, first sermon, under the help and anointing of the Holy Spirit, delivers that message. Some people loved it, 3,000 responded, some people mocked. They were bewildered, literally stopped in their tracks. They were utterly amazed, swept off their feet. They found it incredible. Can I just say, folks, if you are a follower of Jesus, and occasionally people laugh at you and don't understand, you are in a noble tradition. Because not everybody will. Rejoice about that. Be careful, though. Sometimes people come to me, they say, Jeff, they say, I'm not very popular at work. Everyone hates me. Uh, I think it's because I'm a follower of Jesus. And I, sometimes I find myself saying, you know what? I'm not sure it's got anything to do with Jesus. I think it might possibly just be you. <laughs> Let's be careful with that one. Number four, the stunning news is shared. The stunning news is shared. Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Wow! Regularly in Jerusalem, at that time, historians tell us, <coughs> excuse me, there was a population of around 55,000. At festival time, that population would increase to around 200,000. The city is teeming with people. Fifty days earlier, seven weeks or so, the inhabitants of this city had taken Jesus and crucified him. I suggest now it's even more dangerous because you've got 150,000 tourists who haven't seen or heard about what Jesus had been doing. This could cost Peter his life. But he stands up. Again, what does it take for us to stand up as Christians? I remember I remember the first day that I began my career in banking, that was my first career, and I was I was terrible at it. It was years before the Great the Great Recession, but I do feel like I might have had some contribution. The first day, and i got a big Bible that I'm going to read in the lunchroom. And the chief cashier, a packed lunchroom, and the chief cashier looked across at me and said, What are you, what are you reading? I said, It's a Bible. He said, Oh, really? The news shot around that bank that there was a religious guy who read the Bible at lunchtime. John the Baptist is among us. Chief cashier used to call me God. And I was always wrong at the the end of of every day as a teller. I was a bank teller. I was always wrong. And the chief cashier would announce at the end of every day, God's got it wrong again. (laughs) But the truth is, There are people around the world today who are facing great persecution because they're followers of Jesus. I think we should pray for the persecuted church more. I think if we did, not only would that bless them, but we wouldn't be quite so worried about the little things that niggle us about church. They didn't play my song this morning. I I couldn't sit in the chair that I always sit in. The chair that Jesus gave me. I think if we prayed for the persecuted church a bit more, we weren't be we were worried about that stuff. Peter stands up. Number five. A total turnaround is called for. A total turnaround is called for. Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Let's just say that the, th- this was radical. The word repent, metanoia in the Greek, it doesn't just mean turning away from a wrongdoing or sin. It does involve that. But the word repent means to turn around and embrace a whole new worldview. To see everything differently because you are now a follower of Christ. You see, when you repent and turn to Jesus, you look at death differently. When you repent and turn to Jesus, you look at life differently. And it was radical too because 3,000 people are baptised. How were they baptised? Well, the, the Jews practiced baptism. There were little pools around Jerusalem for that. I've seen them. Imagine this. Around the city of Jerusalem the baptismal pools are clogged with people lining up saying, I'm choosing to be a follower of Jesus now. This is not Sunday morning religion. This is radical turnaround that is being called for. Well, the last thing is this. And that is that a beacon community is created. A beacon community is created. Those who accepted his message were baptized. And about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. As we draw this message to a close and then move into a time of prayer, I want to just show you the context of what's happening. On the day of Pentecost, they speak in these tongues and everyone understands. Go all the way back in the story, if you would, to Genesis. In the beginning, God created. In Genesis 2, you've got the Eden community. In Genesis 3, you've got the failure and fall of the first couple, chapter 3. The first murder comes quickly afterwards, chapter 4. History, they call it primeval history, goes progressively downhill to Genesis chapter 11. And it really comes to a head there, because in Genesis 11, there is a decision made to build a humanistic community where God will be banished. They build a tower, the Tower of Babel or Babel. They say, let us make a name for ourselves. Humanity deciding. We don't need God. God comes down. Scatters that tower. And there is a confusion of languages that results. Right then. Genesis chapter 12. God launches his new kingdom community project. He calls a guy, an elderly guy called Abraham with his wife, Sarah. He says, come on a journey. It's a journey that will lead to the creation of a nation, a beacon nation that will show the planet what life lived with me looks like. In the story of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, come with me in this. The formation of the 12 tribes, the harsh persecution in Egypt, the awesome exodus, the gathering together around Mount Sinai, the giving of the law. It's the birth of a community. Created for the purposes of God on the earth and Israel becomes introverted and legalistic and turns faith into religion and a labyrinth of human rules and regulations and the, and the prophets come and kick them and nudge them and call them back and they come back and they drift and they come back and they drift John the Baptist comes and he speaks of one who is to come John the Baptist announcing the coming of Jesus. He says he's going to baptize you in the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is born. He grows up in obscurity. He spends three years teaching the principles of the kingdom. His main message. He goes to the cross to deal with everything that separates me and you from him. Everything dealt with there. On the third day he's raised again from the dead. He spends six weeks with his disciples, reinforcing the principles of the kingdom. Acts chapter 1, we looked at it last week. He says, wait, because the Holy Spirit is coming. And then, on the day of Pentecost, the power of God comes. They speak in tongues. Come with me. Back in Genesis 11, a community without God, everyone's confused, not understanding each other. Now in Acts chapter 2, Holy Spirit comes Everyone understands the message because the beacon community is birth. Ladies and gentlemen, that's what we're part of. That's our privilege. It's not just let's pop down the timberline Sunday morning, get a bit of a spiritual pep up. It's the privilege. Of being part of the Beacon community. For the church. What a tremendous privilege it is. Well. As we say back home. Jolly good. (laughs) Super. Here's the danger. The danger is this. Here's the danger. We we go, great, excellent, splendid information. Thank you very much. Let us now move on towards our dead chicken. Lunch, in case you were wondering. (laughs) Not buffalo. It's no good consigning this to theory its reality John Stott has said the christian life is impossible without the holy spirit we need the holy spirit actively helping us filling us every day so in a moment what we're going to do is have an opportunity for response i invite you please now to stand with me if you are able would you stand if you're able In a moment, we are going to start to sing. But please listen carefully. There are going to be people with anointing oil at the front here and at the sides of this auditorium. If you know that you want to open yourself up to God's power, you are feeling that insufficiency. If you know that you need God's power for a particular element in your life, it it might mean... That you need healing. What's going to happen is, as we sing the song, I'm going to invite you to go to the sides or come to the front, and our friends are going to anoint you with oil on your right hand, just as a symbol of the Holy Spirit. And I want you to stay there, and we're going to pray. I want you to know that we're not going to work anything up. This is not going to get crazy. I'm, I'm not going to do one of those preacher voices. If you are sick and need healing, I don't understand healing, divine healing. Every answer prayer creates confusion. Last weekend, a lady was in one of our services. She said that she had suffered for two or three weeks with great pain. She said, at some point in the service, I don't know when, she said, God just took it, completely healed her. I love it when it's like that because no one gets the credit but Jesus last night a lady stood right down there she said my husband was admitted this week to the hospital with a pancreatic tumour a big one that showed up on two scans, he was in agonising pain obviously she and her family prayed he woke up the doctor said where's the pain he said I haven't got any, they ran a scan and then a second scan, they said the tumour has disappeared This lady stood here last night and she said to me, it's not for me to declare it. It's for her to declare it and more importantly, the doctors to declare it. Because Jesus isn't glorified when we just think and rush. But when these things are authenticated, she said, Pastor Pastor Jeff, it's a miracle. Wouldn't it be amazing if not just in Timberline but across northern Colorado We started to hear a rush of reports of supernatural healings and miracles and activities of God.